In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Last week, we had an excellent conversation with the author of Obedience Pills, Dr. Patrick Hahn. There is a lot more we can expand upon. Let's dig a little deeper. Expansion of the diagnostic criteria and the subjective nature of the Connors 3 assessment. Potential causes linked to disruptive behaviors. On today's podcast, we discuss ADHD. We've had some interesting discussions in here, and Kelly has shared some ideas for a TV show uh, that we're pretty sure someone is writing the let's, pilot episode let's not bring that for up again. now. We don't have to get into details about that. But, I think that's but, a... <laughs> Maybe, maybe I can distract uh, this individual away because I think I have a better idea. Here's my idea. Mm. You remember the movie Pleasantville? Yes. Never saw it. Okay, it was late 1990s era movie. Toby Maguire is obsessed with a 1950s era TV show. That was the one where they went to color or That's right. it was black and white? Okay. So he goes back into the time period. Uh, my idea is a similar concept, but this is a reboot of Dennis the Menace. And I think this should be a limited series, uh, but we'll still call it Dennis the Menace because it has some brand loyalty and recognition, all right? So if you're not familiar with the Dennis the Menace show, it was an American sitcom from the late 1950s into the 1960s, and you know Dennis torments the neighbor, Mr. Wilson. So he's a typical kid. He's energetic. He's trouble-prone. Hijinks ensue. Lessons are learned, right? Every episode kind of follows this formula. Um, so... In this pilot episode for our limited series, Rad Gen Media, um, <laughs> we start off in the year uh, 1960, and the Mitchell family is living their lives with Dennis being a kid, uh, but they wake up one day in the year 2022. All right, you with me like on this journey? So it's a shock, uh, but they assimilate. And to not draw attention to themselves, they want to figure out, you know, what happened. Like, how did they, how did they come into the year 2022? So they act like they just moved to the area. They struggle with language and personalities. And things have changed really drastically over this 60-year time jump. And they just have to get Dennis into school, right? So they're in this new neighborhood and uh, the Mitchell families, you know, going about their days, doing the things the Mitchell family typically does. And Dennis goes to school, but Dennis is still Dennis the Menace, right? And it draws the attention of this particular teacher. And the teacher calls a meeting to sit down with the Mitchell parents and asks if Dennis has ever been diagnosed with ADHD. <laughs> and of course, the Mitchell parents are confused. They're like, uh, no, we're not familiar. Please tell us more about this. And then the teacher takes them through a few of the Connors three rating scale questions and it leads to a lot of questions from the Mitchell parents, a lot of confusion. Uh, I think we can really have fun with this in our first episode. Uh, but in the end, you know, the Mitchells trust the teacher because they, that's what they do. You know, they, they trust those that are professionals around them and their new doctor that they meet. And at the end of episode one, you know, Dennis the Menace takes this futuristic medical intervention and then we cut to black before going to episode two. But in episode two, the show is no longer called Dennis the Menace. It's just called Dennis. Thoughts? <laughs> wow, I like my idea better. <laughs> Come on. All right, we have to take away the word menace because it's not politically correct. Well, he was menacing for the time, right? Dennis, Dennis the Menace has brand loyalty and recognition. So that's why we have to keep it. Don't it, fight me on this. Is it Dennis the ADHD kid? No, that's the theme. So yeah, this is, this is how I think the limited series needs to go. Because you work through this character arc of all the things that Dennis is struggling with. And the, the Mitchell family realizes how much they love Dennis for who he was. And they want to get back to the 1960s again. So they're trying to overcome this time period, and they recognize that this uh, intervention 
really got in the way of Dennis being a normal human being. And they recognized that the struggles, those menacing qualities that Dennis had in terms of his uh, energetic personality really is what they loved about him. So they, they want to get him back to the 1960s and away from this 2022 era that is basically... Can we, can we fast forward to season two? Sure. They're, they're still trying to get... We're, they're still trying to get back to 1960. But however, at this time, um, Dennis has already lost a significant amount of weight from being prescribed stimulants. Um, he's also got three or four additional psychiatric diagnoses. Depression, they're ruling out bipolar disorder, and some people think he might also be autistic. After providing Dennis these stimulants, he's become a shell of his former self. Yes, he's more subdued. He can sit in the, in the classroom, but he just comes home and now he just plays video games all day. He has a hard time waking up in the morning. He doesn't have much of an appetite. He's also feeling much more anxious about living in 2022, which leads to a, another diagnosis. At this point in season number two, he's on four different psychiatric medications. We'll bring it to the writer's room. I want this to be a sitcom. You've turned it into a, a dark comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, after watching that show, it's going to be, uh, I'm going to be a little bit sad. It's a little bit depressing. <laughs> it is sad. It unfortunately is. true because Dennis was just being a kid. That's but, right. And that's but, where but there are truths to this, right? Sure. So, I mean, this is, unfortunately, you bring up a point of comparison about how we're going to think about kids differently based on error. Yeah. And so at one point, you know, it, it is a, it is a kid who's a bit overactive and mischievous mm -hmm. and he creates problems for the uh, retired Mr. Wilson next door. Mm -hmm. But in 2022, we think about it as a serious medical condition um, that requires uh, a pharmaceutical that has some significant consequences and it can be kind of a gateway diagnosis to multiple other drugs. These stories, unfortunately, you know, they're not rare. This is, this is part of the, the world we're living in in 2022. I wanted to have a follow-up mm -hmm. to our previous podcast on obedience pills and Dr. Patrick Hahn. I wanted to get into more nuanced discussion about ADHD. Um, we've done some research coming into this. I think I feel a little bit more prepared to ask critical questions today. But I, I think we, we start off with uh, trying to analyze the legitimacy of the diagnosis. I want to stay away from extremes. I think we, we're pretty good at sometimes here and being able to analyze both ends of an argument. But I do want to start out with some statistics that I think are really relevant. Um, and this is according to the, the CDC. Um, and I think 2016 was the last data point I was able to get. Um, but it is estimated that there are 6.1 million children who are diagnosed ADHD in the United States as of 2016. Since that was now six years ago, I can only imagine that that, that prevalence rate has increased. Now, that's, that's, that's significant um, because about 13% are, are boys. Now, in a 2022 study that recently came out, which is kind of a fresh estimate of how many uh, kids actually you know, would meet the DSM-5 definition of ADHD, it's only about 3.5%, right? So that's that expansion. It's constantly creeping into other areas so that their addressable market keeps getting larger. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about upwards of like four times the amount. You know, mm -hmm. think about it. Uh, I've seen other statistics that by the time a, a, a boy reaches the age of 18 that we're looking closer to 20% who are going to... Uh, you know, be diagnosed. So we're seeing this diagnostic 20% of boys, 20% of boys meeting, you know, criteria for that diagnosis. So we're seeing significant, I don't know if that's accurate. You know, okay. that, that's something that I, I recently saw and, and you can't always trust everything you read, mm -hmm. but let's just stay with CDC just statistics back in 2016. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, 10% of the population close 13% boys. Um, while only maybe 3.5% meet the actual diagnostic criteria. And that criteria is broad. Mm -hmm. So the question number one, okay, and I, and I think we answered it on the previous podcast. Is there some clearly identified medical etiology that 
um, could test for this, like a brain condition or a brain disorder or something genetic? Has the medical world evolved through research to identify that ADHD is a biomedical disorder? You're talking about through like blood blood work, things like that? Brain, scans, brain scans, anything. And the overwhelming evidence up to this point is no, nothing's really been identified. There's been hypotheses. You know, you've talked about things in terms of like prefrontal cortex and uh, uh, potentially the dopamine, um, that neurochemical, but nothing has ever been clearly established. You just keep coming back to the, to the fact that this is socially constructed. So, so if nothing's been established, scientifically speaking, then why do so many people believe that it not only exists, but that it's about chemicals in the brain and everything. Is that just a narrative that is put out there? Well, that's that biomedical narrative that's been certainly pushed by the pharmaceutical in industry and those who are on the payroll. Um, but I don't think people realize how easy it is to obtain this diagnosis. All right, so let's go back. So I think we, we agree that it's socially constructed. If Sean brings in that story about how 2022 is so much different than 1960. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a tolerance for human, for children behavior has altered. Yep. It's shifted, it's changed. We're viewing typical and normal human uh, child development in a different way in 2022. How are these diagnoses obtained? Okay, so let's go back into greater detail. Kelly, you're a teacher. We've talked about this on the previous podcast. In front of us, fellas, we have the, the Connors. Uh, it's the third edition of the Connors. I guess we would say this is the gold standard of assessment for ADHD. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about uh, checklists. Checklists that are provided to a parent and checklists that are provided to a teacher or multiple teachers. And we are looking for some uh, statistically relevant data that suggests they're in some at-risk range, okay? We have had fun with this kind of stuff on the, in the past by like looking at and actually examining these questions. If you don't look, if you're unable to step back and see some of the humor in it, then I think you might get stuck in, in some idea that these are really culturally, scientifically relevant. But if we step back and we, and we can create some humor around it, then I think we can begin to examine it. Mm -hmm. What stands out? I'm going to let you guys. We've got both the parent form and the teacher form in front of us. What immediately stands out when you start looking at some of these questions? Well, as a teacher, I've had to fill these out several times. And one of the biggest things I just said prior to the podcast is the subjectivity of everything. And then some of these are, you're, you are forced to answer. I want to reiterate that. You may not leave an answer blank. So if uh, I look at and observe the student and it says something like this gets picked last for groups or gym class, I'm not a gym teacher and if I, I, I'm not allowed to leave that blank. So I am forced then to take a guess. Now I can either guess and say, well, because I don't know, zero, I, you know, I, I don't know. Or I could say, well, maybe, maybe I assume that the kid doesn't get picked because he's quiet all the time and seems shy. So now I have to use my deductive reasoning, which obviously then completely throws out a, an objective um, determinant. And so now I'm, I'm sort of making things up in my head about this. And that leads me then to judge other questions. And you're already biased, right? We're already biased. Because they're assessing this child for ADHD. Correct. So you're automatically biased through that, through that lens. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there's guessing. Absolutely. And, and there's subjectivity. Okay. Absolutely. Before your thought, Sean, one of the things that stands out for me is this concept of a construct validity. Are we actually assessing the construct as it's developed? One of the things that stands out to me are all these questions that if you answer them as if they are very much true, it doesn't necessarily mean it's ADHD is the problem. It could be another problem. Okay. So for example, um, if you have a sore throat, it doesn't necessarily mean you have COVID. True. You can have a sore throat and it could be strep throat. It could be another viral infection. Could be a bad night of sleep and snoring. Could be a lot of different things. 
But when in, in the psychiatric field, in the modern psychological assessment field, there are symptoms that could have many other causes and they don't do a really good job of distinguishing what those causes may be. We'll get into some examples of that. But Sean, what do you, what well, stands out for you? I'm, I'm reading these for the first time and I'm looking at the rating scale of zero to three. So zero is not true at all, never or seldom. Uh, whereas one is just a little true, meaning occasionally. So there is just a little bit of, of, um, of a discrepancy there in terms of like what seldom and occasionally means. But I'm trying to figure out like what the, the scoring is in terms of if I have more, if I have a higher, if I'm rating a two or a three for a bunch of these things, does that make him ADHD or not ADHD? Because some things I would look at as, <laughs> as being very um, like independent thinkers and maybe a little more mature uh, than others. All um, right. So like th this is, <laughs> well, this is fascinating, right? Because that's the question. The assumption is if these frequently happen, it means that the, uh, it could meet criteria for ADHD. How about if I just, if I repeat some of them and you, and you tell me if this, what other things it could be involved with mm -hmm. other than ADHD. Okay. Has no friends. Well, it could be a lot of things. It could be just moved to the area, um, hasn't, uh, is new to the classroom. Shy. Could be shy. Or maybe every kid in the class is a jerk and he's actually a smart kid for not wanting to hang out with them. Cultural differences. Sure. That's true, yeah. Socioeconomic differences. The ones that was, that was sticking out to me is, is difficult to please or amuse. I would have given you a three. <laughs> Good. That's because I'm a, I'm a very uh, you know confident person, and and all your kind of um, juvenile humor just doesn't amuse me. Oh come on! <laughs> so so some of these are reversed scores too. Reversed scores just mean you score them the other way. A zero would would be would be given a, a three when you add it up. Mm -hmm. But look, it is fun to be around. Um, has trouble with reading. Like, like why does that have? anything to do with what is ADHD. They would probably determine the focus. Everything would be about focus. But there could something. be so many other exactly. reasons why someone might have trouble with, uh, makes mistakes. Yeah. Makes mistakes. Like every single human being would score three because we all make mistakes. Run, I, runs or climbs when he's not supposed to. Cannot grasp arithmetic. How about this? They have, t does not talk and then one of them is talks too much. <laughs> Behaves like an so, angel. Yeah, but those are going to be reverse scores. I understand. That, I understand. Those are That's for, those are for comparison. Still. But I'm looking at things from a test. If I'm trying to uh, develop a test that accurately assesses for this condition that we construct. Behaves like an angel. What's an an what, what does that, an angel what is, do? How does an angel behave? Right? I know. Welcome to my field. Mm -hmm. And if you question why I'm so outspoken about some of this. I mean, it's, it's just like this, like we have to give these ridiculous assessment measures and act as if they are scientifically valid. Okay. I'm looking at the, uh, the, the parent form right now. That's what I'm looking I'm at. I'm in the yeah. teacher's form. If I go into some of the teacher stuff here, um, <laughs> it's hard to motivate even with rewards like candy or money. Yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? It's cruel to animals. Now, that's Everything I know about cruelty to the animals demonstrates like conduct disorder. So, and, and where are there animals in school, you know, where a teacher can kind of assess those things. Do teachers always know how many friends a kid has? No. Um, spelling is poor. You know, like the, these are things that now you're, you're biasing teachers to believe that they are symptoms of this identifiable attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And as you're filling it out, I want to point out the, just the words. We always talk a lot about the, the manipulation of media and words, words in general. Well, what about tests? I brought this up before on, on things like this. Mm -hmm. you, you actually look at zero, two, one, two, three. Look at how they have the three and two. Very much true. Just the very much. The fact that you're using two adverbs, right? Mm -hmm. you're, and then they start. Number one, leave seat when he or she should stay seated. So... Uh, even in high school, there's plenty of, of times where students have gotten up maybe because they got a stretch or anything, but Hey, you get this. And in your mind, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to try to do this as fairly as possible, as objectively as possible, but they sure do leave their seats. So that's a three. The second one is gets overly excited. Suddenly your brain as a teacher, as a professional goes right to the bias of, 
And then you start, it's like forcing you into a direction to answer the questions, which is absolutely awful. Seems tired, has low energy. I guess that depends if this is the first class of the day or the last class of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many variables. It's so unscientific. The, it's so broad. It's so general. So we have no really established medical etiology or evaluation, yet pediatricians make this diagnosis. Primary care physicians make this diagnosis. How do they make this diagnosis? Based on potentially rating scales. Sometimes it's not even that. These are the rating scales. The Connors is the gold standard. Then you're talking about a, a parent who that might be their only child or maybe it's just comparison to another child or what they believe their child or who their child should be versus the subjectivity of a, of a teacher. And we already spoke about on this previous podcast that one teacher can view the same behavior from a different perspective or a different lens. Okay. So ultimately what we're saying is that if you act outside the established norm of a classroom, of our public school, then you are meeting, you can meet criteria for a disorder. So the question becomes, are we, are we drugging people, young children, just to fit narrow norms of society? Why have we established the narrow norm? Like, let's get into some complexity around here. Um, are, we, are we trying to train a certain type of person? Like, we're trying to shape, identify, and train a certain type of person. And who is that that has success under um, this idea of normality? Well, I had read the, uh, the book Obedience Pills, who was our, our last uh, discussion. And if I recall, it happened during that... Um space race period of like the 1950s and 60s with uh, Russian Sputnik and then the evolution of our entire education system to put people into certain groups and certain categories, which led to ratings and then, you know, to identify those who could potentially excel or needed to go into other type of, of work. I, I, I see a lot of correlations in terms of that to what happens in other countries as well, not in terms of like socialism, but in terms of early on in someone's development, putting them into a certain area where they think they're going to thrive. And I think it's far too young for anybody at that age to, to really know what their strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, as a teacher, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, I would agree with that. The system itself has been around for over 200 years now, and it's the same system. And yet, as times change technologically, social media, people actually be probably not becoming smarter, but having a lot more information at a younger age, mm -hmm. you would think that the educational system itself would have adapted and shifted and changed. But because it hasn't, it's very possible that you have a lot of kids that are sitting down, you know, almost like in a cubicle at a desk and being told you must stay there and they're children. Mm -hmm. They're children. They're going to want to get up. They're going to want to play. They're going to want to get outside. They're going to want to ask questions. And we're looking at that type of behavior in this current system as such a negative, when in reality, if you would allow them to have some more movement, perhaps to allow them to not be wrong, like you're saying the wrong thing, let them be creative with their thoughts, let them challenge a little bit more. But that's not what this system does. Mm -hmm. This system still, to this day, even the most progressive systems, keep people seated, keep people at bay, and force feed answers into their into their brains. So I would argue the system hasn't been around for 200 years. It's actually more probably about 100 years. So it's almost like a post-industrial age. And as we continue to evolve with modern society, there's certain, I think, truths that, that, that exist. So if you're going to train a modern workforce in a capitalist society, I think there are a number of attributes that would lead somebody to be successful. First of all, there's only so many innovators, right? So um, with a small percentage of innovators, uh, it is really, you need a whole lot of, of rule followers. You do need obedience. You do need the ability to be productive for extended periods of time. You do need focused attention on boring tasks because of a lot of the work that does need to, 
to get completed tends mm-hmm. to be um, mu- mundane or boring. Um, you have to be able to do it repetitively and you have to have the tolerance to be able to do it. Um, you have to also um, be able to, I think, fit within a, a, a created social environment around cooperation because if there is too much critical questioning, independent thinking and competition, then, um, you know, that would really interfere with uh, an organization's ability to be able to complete these tasks and, and move forward in a way that would um, allow you to be very productive. You have to have a small amount of people who, who can question things and think critically and, and innovate, but they still have to have a lot of the other, the other skills that I think yeah. in a, in like a the compromising skills, the communication, you know, seeing the bigger picture and then working towards still being able to sit still, yeah. accomplish things for really long periods of time, a selective focus and attention. You can't be that active. You can't have uh, a diversion of attention to things that aren't necessarily relevant to the completed task. So you can't have too much daydreaming, creativity, because you have to get things done. It's at the expense of getting things done. So there's a lot of it. It's about training a, a modern workforce. And then when you talk about stimulant medication, which is the predominant treatment, we know what the short-term effects are. They do subdue the individual. They do allow for, at least in the short term, some degree of focus on mundane or boring tasks. So my argument today is it is a socially constructed condition that certainly drives obedience, attention to rules, and focus on things that might be challenging or difficult. That's not to say, because I think two things can be true, that there might be a real small percentage of people whose attention and hyperactivity are so impairing that it interferes with their own ability to be able to live a productive life. But like a lot of these conditions, they start out with a very small percentage of the population and we continue to expand the criteria and include more people in order to have more kind of control over those who are not socially accepted into what is that that desired norm. So I started off this discussion with my example of a great, you know, narrative for how do you tell this story of 60 years of evolution and, you know, blink of an eye in terms of the interpretation and that expansion, you know, the idea of Dennis the Menace being in a new school in a new environment, there are reasons why he could be acting out in a manner that is you know, looked at as problematic, quote unquote. You know, he's in a, a, a new school. He doesn't have any friends. He lives in a time period that is unfamiliar to him. And he already had you know, was used to, to living his life in the, in the 1960s where he had the freedom to roam and the freedom to act out because that was what a child did during that time. So now you kind of do this flash forward and you can see how it's drastically changed and it, it, it hopefully, you know, it would draw attention to and, and point out how far we've gone away from letting a human being be a human being and learn from mistakes and go through the transition and all those things that are important at that young age. But now we have a tendency to kind of tamp it down and, and medicalize it. Yeah. And, and here's my belief. I think when you, when you make up a, a diagnosis like ADHD, for those who really are experiencing impairment from attention and hyperactivity to a way, like for example, some kids dart out into traffic, like, um, I remember doing an evaluation when I was in my doctoral program for ADHD uh, in a practicum site. And this kid was like climbing the um, bookcases. Like he could not sit still. How old? I'm going to say seven. Okay. Right. Like it really, really stood out. Um, so I want to make the argument that there is a, uh, a condition where somebody's attention and hyperactivity deviates so significantly from the norm that their life is really impaired and makes it very difficult to potentially parent or for those people, these kids to be able to adapt into many settings, whether it's sports or school. And in your experience, that's not subjective. It's almost very recognizable. You cannot deny it. Okay. Now here's my concern that when you have a made up diagnosis like ADHD, 
that you might be missing some conditions that actually would influence that presentation. Um, let's think about all the things that could lead to somebody having difficulty time focusing and are way too hyperactive. Well, number one for me would be trauma. Okay. Could be uh, a trauma or abuse. So coming from a, tra a traumatic or neglectful environment would make uh, it very difficult for somebody to selectively attend on uh, neutral stimuli and focus their attention on a boring task because their brain is now looking and scanning for threats. There's distrust. There's anxiety. So excellent one. What about if you're just hungry? Okay. Well, I, I don't think hunger is going to create that type of behavior, but nutrient deficiencies will. Mm -hmm. um, we all agree, and we've talked about the importance of food and mood and toxicity in the American food system. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to post this on... Um, the show summary, but I, I read a very clear connection between celiac disease and symptoms of hyperactivity. Can you explain to our audience what celiac disease is? I only know it because of the, um, what's the, uh, you can't, the gluten You can't process gluten. Or, okay. Is that all it, it is? I, I think it's an intolerance for gluten. Yeah. yeah. And then your body has a reaction to it. But there's there are some people who um, believe it's how uh, wheat is grown and manufactured in the United States. So you might be able to like eat gluten in Europe or in another country, but uh, the, the degree of pesticides and how, um, how wheat is just uh, manufactured, grown and manufactured and produced here in the United States has led to a, a spike in, um, in what's called celiac disease. So nutrient deficiencies plus uh, pesticides and toxicity are also factors that would influence symptoms of hyperactivity and inattention. So my concern is the way the field has developed psychiatrically, or medically generally, is that you create a, a condition for it to be drugged, but you've never identified the actual causes. So yeah, there's a strong correlation is what you're seeing, but they don't know if it's a causation yet. It's just something that needs to be further studied. Uh, I, I kind of, I read through, I mean, sometimes you send us these clinical studies and I've, I've been vocal before, like reviewing a clinical study is, yeah. is overwhelming. Yeah. So I read the, uh, the intro and I kind of go yeah, down to the track. conclusion <laughs> and then I'm trying to understand, you know, what it is and maybe I'll scroll back up and look at some of the data. Let's just say that there's evidence that celiac disease causes, uh, hyperactivity and inattention. Okay. Right, so we'll someone at that. Yeah. Got it. All right. Okay. Um, other things also include poor parenting, mm -hmm. right? Uh, lack of discipline. Right, So we know that attention is something that can be strengthened. It is not something that you're born with and it stays static through the rest of your life. So how you're, you're, you're going to be uh, entering into the, the terrible twos at some point, right? Yeah, yep, he's almost uh, two. Yep. Um, and why do we call it the terrible two, twos? Well, because they haven't fully developed their language skills. So they're trying to communicate things, but they can't do it clearly. So they get frustrated and angry and they sometimes act out. Impulse control is off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that like behavioral modification and interventions are very critical during this period as if like attention or focus or things can be trained. I mean, we can train our own animals. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do this with two-year-olds as well. And um, so like if you are, raising your kids through screens and through technology and there's constant stimulation well your brain is developing in a certain way and this concept of attention is a is a construct that um, through evolution it's been designed to focus on the most relevant stimuli right so if we think about um, human biology mm -hmm. right and the survival mechanisms our attention is really designed to focus on what's most important at that given time. That's a survival mechanism. Yeah. So it tends to adapt well to like lots of different stimuli and it's something that grabs our attention. So if you're sitting in school, for example, and uh, you know, you're, a, a kid is prone to daydreaming, mm -hmm. what's going to uh, grab their attention is what they believe to be most exciting or most relevant. And there's diversity in the human experience. So, so many people have varied interests and it's what allows um, like society to be constructed. You have people who are interested in being a teacher, 
in the topics that we're talking about in engineering. This diversity of human experience comes together to evolve a society. So you know that in a school system, there are going to be kids who want to be out moving or building or constructing and they're being asked to do something with English or Shakespeare, for example. Their mind is not constructed to hook on to those things because they're not relevant. And to your point before, if there is another reason like conflict in the home or abuse or neglect, their mind is, is going to be there. And that is your mind working exactly as it should. But in modern society, what we can do is we can identify that as poor attention and that being a problem, and we make up a diagnosis and we treat it. So we're not identifying causes. There's other causes too that would be relevant, like just physical activity. You know, you're designed to move beyond nature. That's why recess, phys ed are so important. So we're, we're, these are socially constructed conditions, but there are other reasons why someone might experience attention or hyperactivity that has nothing to do with this made-up disorder. There's actual true etiology and there's and you have to be able to identify what those causes are and actually treat them Mm -hmm. i'm curious if there's any studies and you haven't done research in this but i would imagine the public school environment versus some of the private schools or some of the other new schools that are you know exploring new ways of of approaching things might have really significant differences in terms of the um the prevalence of uh, the the diagnosis of adhd um I'm going to do some digging and see if I can I find anything. I'm sure there's some, you know, very abstract, you know, looking at that data point. But uh, I, w- I would think the public school environment almost forces uh, that diagnosis upon others just because of the teacher to student ratio. Sure. But do- I mean, Dr. Han on that podcast did say, mm-hmm. he gave us an example of a study that was done where they did change the day around. And they, you know, there was a lot more movement. And I know that that's... But- that a lot of the ADHD diagnoses went down within, you know, a certain time period. That's absolutely correct. And I'll, I'll call it out. It was the LINK project, yeah. L-I-I-N-K project, which was is a school. So that school um, was was trying some some new things and uh, had some, some good results. And I, if you look at uh, episode 46, show description down at the bottom, it was right around the 38-minute mark is when we were talking about that. So yeah, interesting to to see you know how the evolution of school continues to uh, to improve. So there is there th- this begs the question then: Are our teachers um, are, we, are we trained enough to recognize when something is happening in a child's life that might be showing signs of what what these ADHD things on the Connor? And you know, because I can tell you this, I've been in meetings where. The one student was was pointed out, and you go around the room, that teacher has a problem with the student, that teacher has a problem with the student, that teacher has a problem with the student. They come to me, and I'm like, I haven't seen this. Mm-hmm. Right? And another teacher, too, says, well, I haven't seen that either. Personality differences. Of course. It comes down to personality differences, and, and we used to see this all the time. Yeah. It, it, your tolerance level as, a, as an individual matters. Like, I always had um, maybe like a high level of tolerance for um, like movement or uh, kids like maybe speaking out or having opinions or wanting to have fun or to play, you know, within limits. But sure. you have some people have just have a greater tolerance for that where other people are, are very anxious and regimented. So, um, you know, especially some, some teachers who want full control of that classroom and are just completely uncomfortable with movement or speaking out or ideas. And so that personality comes into play if you believe that kind of control and you value it to that extent, then you're clearly going to see anyone that acts outside of that as something wrong with them. Well, I thought there was something wrong with the teacher who believed things needed to be so regimented and controlled. And we used to get into those discussions all the time mm-hmm. um, because how Kelly and I got became close is because he was, I thought... Um, doing really innovative work in his classroom that allowed for critical thinking, questioning and acting outside what was the, what was typical of a, of a classroom. His room was actually fun. And when you, when you're dealing with like eighth graders, ninth graders or seventh graders, let's face it, they needed to have some 
some fun. Sure. So there was like some competition. There was some questioning. There was a group place work. of learning. Where does fun come into play, Mister Weatherhold? We learned as well. We <laughs> just played a lot of games. And yeah, stuff. it was just it was a different way to to, to learn, teach. and certain things were emphasized while others were minimized. Mm-hmm. And then you you they'll walk out of that classroom and they'll go into another one. Everything gets flipped right. upside down. So now what is emphasized is order, mm-hmm. rote memory and recall of information following rules, obedience, and and homework. So Kelly got them all riled up and excited and then sent them off to yeah, another teacher like, who had to calm them back down. I was like the grand the grandparent who gave candy and then sent them back. <laughs> yeah, they had a pro- I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but in the middle school environment, I mean, people had problems with it. And the same thing with me when I'd come into a classroom and have to do a lesson, which I did, riled the kids up. You know, mm-hmm. did lots of different things, and then you know, I'd leave. <laughs> so <laughs> then, then your problem now. So Kelly, you, as a young teacher, you were trying all these things. How have you evolved? Well, I'm at the high school now, so some of those you know game show things or what I did, they still I actually will still do them, and they still do react very positively. I get a lot of um, hesitancy for the way that I teach from those individuals, those students who are so used to following obedience and rules you know the kids that feel as if they have to always raise their hands Mm -hmm. when they find out that we have a lot of socratics and we can discuss and we discuss a lot of things openly they're very hesitant at first by the end of the year they're very talkative very comfortable you know um and so it's not everybody i know i'm not for everybody but yeah i try that's my goal my goal would be as an educator to get everybody in the class to at least feel comfortable to have some sort of an opinion or some sort of critical thought, something where they realize they can talk openly, honestly, and without anybody getting on their, on their case. That's kind of the environment that you have. When you have that type of an environment, everybody feels better and you're going to get a lot more out of the kids, right? So I don't, I don't do a lot of tests. It's a lot of, again, it's a lot of just critical writing, critical thinking, um, and so they tend to enjoy it. They tend to like it. But again, it is not for everybody. But the teachers are the ones that don't always like what I do. So the idea of tolerance, and we'll go back to this Connors 3 for the teacher. You said you had to fill any out. Do you feel yourself filling it out? Like, uh, Let me rephrase the question. How often do you recognize a child as you know, probably being um, more in that hyperactivity area? I can't tell you because when I answer them, Again, many of them I can't answer with absolute, mm-hmm. like I don't know, yeah. but I'm forced to. It says it right here in the directions because the, the listeners can't see it. It says, please circle only one answer for each item. It is important to respond to every item. For items you find difficult to answer, please give your best guess, mm-hmm. which to me and wouldn't be very scientific. For the teacher, there's 113 questions. Uh, for the parent, there's 45. So, so I don't I don't know how many students that I've actually, you know, had mm-hmm. to go through and process that were actually then diagnosed because that's privileged information. Okay. Oh. So all the teachers have to do it and then somebody compiles it. I would imagine the school psychologist starts there and then they're in contact with an outside resource. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. So let's, so it's blown up in society, right? Over the past 30 years, we've gone from a, a negligible amount of people who've been identified with attention hyperactivity disorder to, you know, where we're looking at, you know, ten, one in five potentially. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's dramatic. Why does something like this occur? Why does it happen? Well, part of it is the absolute brilliance that exists of, um, of pharmaceutical marketing and those who've benefited from this diagnosis. The, some of the... Um, I think most interesting psychologically um, fascinating components of uh, of the development of an ADHD diagnosis is that it's it's not your fault kind of marketing messages. So if we are unaware of uh, behavior problems, and let's let's face it, once you go down this list, it's about kids with behavior problems. Okay, they're trying to identify what kids who have behavior problems, and then you provide them a diagnosis. One of the messages that was really important in that book for obedience pills is that previously how we looked at behavior problems was that this was an opportunity to teach Mm -hmm. and behavior can be shaped. And when kids' behavior acts outside of the norm, there's good reason for it. 
um, whether it's from a chaotic home environment, other problems they're experiencing, or maybe self-discipline they have to learn, or from what we discovered, maybe a small percentage who are experiencing some form of a medical, identifiable medical condition. When you use ADHD, now you're, you're, you're losing that identifiable cause. But when those causes are from a chaotic home environment or poor parenting or other causes, you are now providing this uh, label and this identification that does relieve some guilt, some shame for parents and maybe the student themselves. And you're sending the message is that it's not your fault you have an identifiable brain condition. So it doesn't even matter whether that's true or not. The, if you relieve that guilt, you're now providing a social reward. And that social reward in society will increase the prevalence rate. So some of the other social rewards outside relieving somebody of guilt or shame is there's also accommodations that are provided in the school system. Those accommodations can include extra time that would exist on tests. Preferential seating. Preferential seating. Um, assignments don't have to be turned in on time. So in actually to adapt well, once you get older, you have to learn how to meet deadlines. And so they're provided extra time and deadlines are pushed back. You also might get um, something that is really important, organization skills. Uh, some time with a teacher who will like, organize notebooks and do other things. And so um, that I think it, it is helpful and, and, and maybe it should just be part of like the school systems as far as you're kind of, um, as you're growing up anyway, any kids who struggle with organization, just like any other skill, it should be something that yeah. should be built. Like it shouldn't have to, you shouldn't require should an accommodation. No, right? I, I agree. I remember when I first went to university, like my first year, I was horrible. And I didn't know how to organize notes. Uh, my studying was poor. I didn't know how to study correctly. Um, and when it came to the test taking time, I would go in completely unprepared because uh, I just, I, because all those things that I failed at in the development of or getting ready for a test, I had to teach myself and learn how to do it. And I went to other people that had the skills that I didn't have and figured out what was working for them and I had to adapt. That's, that's the whole point is that you can't teach somebody to take notes and organize in a certain way and say, this is the only way to do it. Many mm. people develop their own way of doing it. And actually that's the correct way to do it. Diversity. So there is no absolute way of taking notes in college mm -hmm. or, or doing your job at your, you know, at, you have your way. Mm -hmm. And if it works, that's amazing. But so many students are forced to do things in a certain way, particularly with organization and note taking. And then they're like, I don't understand this and I don't want to do it this way. I'd rather do it this way, but the teachers aren't allowing them to do it this yeah. way. You know, yeah. they're getting to the same answer if they go this way or this way, but they're being punished usually with grades if they don't do it the way that the teacher says you must do it this way. Mm -hmm. So there you go. There's another, um, when we talk about being diagnosed, that's just normal behavior. Like, look at, I don't want to do it this way. I have my own way of doing things. Yeah. For some people, definitely. Um, others are skills to be sure, built. Sure. I, I certainly do accept that there is a, a, a wide variability in skill development. While some people might uh, skew to the side where they're extremely organized, others might be just more messy and less attentive to those things. And so I do understand how that doesn't always lend itself to success in a school environment, but I also would say that those are skills that can be built. They're not necessarily disorders. It's just the variability and mm -hmm. diversity that exists among people. So we're losing that idea. And by identifying a disorder to it, we're attaching a label. We are removing some personal responsibility to building those skills and Unfortunately, too many people are adopting this idea that it's the same as tuberculosis or cancer or something else, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it, the healing of it or the changing of it is, occurs outside of you. You don't have control over your own behavior. And I know how that relieves some guilt and shame. The other thing I, I, I want to mention is what happens to people who have other uh, kind of psychological conditions. For example, the worrier or let's say someone who has an eating disorder. So remember, your attention and your focus is going to be hijacked into uh, what you believe to be most relevant. So the worrier is prone to thinking about worst case scenarios and outcomes. And they, they often retreat into their own minds and think about all these possible scenarios. 
that takes your attention away from the present moment. For someone who might have an eating disorder, for example, their attention is going to be focused on like body image and they might be focusing on the size of their stomach or their legs. So there's a number of conditions that can be treated effectively that when you are handed the diagnosis of ADHD, it's driving you towards stimulant medication and not actually targeting the problem that exists. So we have so many people walking around with ADHD diagnoses, which aren't actually getting them help in building the skills that they need to overcome what they're actually struggling with. And if stimulant medications were provided with no consequence, it wouldn't be that much of an issue. If we could hand them out and we say it's going to increase focus um, throughout time, you can, you can take Adderall until you're 90 and it's this power pill without any medical consequences. It, I don't know if it's that much of an issue, but the truth of the matter is there, there are significant health consequences to long-term stimulant use mm-hmm. and um, they're vast. I, we're not going to go over all of them in detail, but obviously there are like real legitimate health risks to long-term stimulant use. And those who are our listeners today have to understand that this diagnosis is not benign. You know, once you have it, it has consequences to it and how you treat it, but also to how you think about your own condition. So one area that you're kind of taking a role in right now in our organization is the parent skills training. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have a a DBTA program and you're working with parents. I would, I'm making an assumption here, but when it comes to a diagnosis of ADHD, there's a, to a parent, if that's brought to you and you don't do anything about it and you fight it and argue against it, do you, are there concerns of negligence? No, because what is it? Well, uh, you know, it, it's, but it's I'm almost, going back to the, the trust that uh, a lot of parents have in what is considered an authority figure or somebody who may know or may know more than they know, either mm-hmm. a doctor or a teacher, someone who has been exposed and has recognized these in the past. You, I would imagine the influence is quite great. Yeah, I, I hope that some of them that are listening to this podcast right now and other people are listening to the podcast because I think the assumption is and why we're having this discussion is because there is this assumption that that ADHD is an established identifiable medical condition with effective treatment. They're judging their children to be different than what would be the normal trajectory. And what we want to say right now is it is unlikely that is the case. Although I do believe there is a select few of people who deviate greatly from what is is the norm, there is a large percentage of kids who come in for mental health treatment where that diagnosis is just added on. Yeah. Right. It's the, there's other things that they're dealing with, but they add on that diagnosis just because they say they have difficulty focusing or attention, but anyone who would be struggling emotionally is going to have difficulty focusing uh, their attention. The other thing is we're not talking about enough is the rise of, of technology. I think all of our attention even us who didn't grow up so that those key developmental years where our brains were adapting, we didn't, we weren't exposed to phones, mm-hmm. but even now we can understand the power of the smartphone in what it does to hijack our own attention, right? Like we use it for everything. Kelly, right now you're looking at, at notes, yep, yep. you know, I check my email, I'll check um, a number of things throughout the day on my phone, mm-hmm. right? And like when it's away from you, you feel anxiety. If you have the notifications on, the sounds hijack your brain and your attention and they focus over it. We have a lot of people now where it's hard just to sit still and even focus on a movie or a television program without also pulling out your phone and, and looking at other things. Well, let's go just in the area of television shows. When we were growing up, there was almost this uh, appointment viewing, right? You had to wait in order to experience a certain program. There was a show that you watched, or even when the holidays came, how excited were you, were you when like Rudolph the Ra- uh, Red-Nosed Reindeer would come on right around that Christmas time? 
like you would sit down and you would have to wait for it and then you would enjoy it. But now if a child wants to watch a certain program, they can do it at the push of a button yeah. and it becomes this other like dopamine rush from, I see with my child right now, he's almost two years old and there's certain things like he'll wake up in the morning, he'll go bang on the TV cause he wants to watch something. Mm-hmm. And we're like, no, you it's not in addictive. the morning. Like, but we do allow him to watch certain things in the afternoon when he wakes up from a nap while we're getting dinner ready, but he loves it. He yeah. loves it. He wants it all the time because it's all that stimulation. Same thing with a video game. Mm-hmm. You know, think about everything about a video game is exciting to children and adolescents and even a lot of adults, right? There's, we've never saw video game addiction before, but now there's video game addiction because you have the rewards of, 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 of doing better in each round or, or competing mm-hmm. against other people. You can compete now on video games from around the world and the stimulation and the problem solving and the figuring things out. It's excite. It's really, really exciting. Much more exciting than maybe many of the the mundane components of everyday living. So like we see this, like I am a therapist. I have to focus hours out of my day on one person's conversation. And the things that Sean that I don't bring up that probably I need to talk about, I think it's harder and harder to find really good therapists. Before we jump into that, can I point out something? I don't even know if you're aware of this. Are you familiar with the uh, company Endeavor RX? No. It's the only doctor-prescribed video game treatment for kids with ADHD. It just happened in like the last year. Um, I believe it's FDA-approved video game uh, that improves the attention function in children 8 to 12 with ADHD. It's a safe add-on alongside other treatments. I'm going to include the joke. link in our in our summary. I don't know enough about it, but I saw it on the news. That and, is absolute and bullshit. I, the idea of a, of a video game, I thought, is what causes Well, here, Here's my critical question. If if ADHD is a, is a disorder of selective attention, mm-hmm. you're telling me that you can selectively attend to a, a video game that's probably high stimulation. Mm-hmm. And that is going to help you sit down and focus in like English class? Well, that's a great point. Well, what about this? What if a kid is not on video games, but will, will not stop doing their homework when they get home? What if their attention it, is only on that? Yeah. Is there, are they going to make a pill for, hey, we, we know that your child is now suffering from doing too much of what we really wanted them to do, but here you go. I mean, this is, this is getting borderline we, absurd. It is absurd. And, and we have parents who will say... Because of my kid's ADHD, I can't get him to, to um, complete homework. Well, what's he doing instead of the homework? He plays video games for hours. That's a parenting problem. And, and so I, I, my next question is, so you're telling me he can sustain his attention for hours on, on just a video game? And parents have to realize that, um, that this, this might make you feel better um, with, this, with this diagnosis, but it in no way solves the greater problem. And that was the point of our last discussion is if these stimulant medications or these diagnoses have any impact on actual um, improvement in academics or performance, they don't. Even the the stimulant drugs, short-term effect with long-term consequences that do not improve academic performance. They do not decrease the likelihood that you will develop a substance abuse problem or have impulse control related problems like speeding tickets or accidents or other things. There is no impact. And the more that we realize that the medicalization of everyday human life for the benefit of a pharmaceutical industry is actually harming our development. They're harming our children. They're harming our quality of life. We don't wake up from this and begin to challenge it and take a step back and look accurately at what is actually happening and help people where they need to be helped, then we're stuck in this world with everyone having these labels and these labels are justification for having poor quality of life. You shared uh, a summary of some of the parental narratives uh, that are in online forums about children that have been diagnosed with uh, ADHD and finally getting a doctor that would put their children on medication. And as I was reading through it, I, part of me was feeling like almost sympathy for the parents because they've obviously had some struggles. And there are a lot of parents that maybe, you know, their child does fit into that 
that category of truly needing some type of, of help. Um, and Kelly, in the previous podcast, you shared examples also. You know, how <laughs> this is where it gets so dicey is like as, as a parent, how do you, where do you draw the line? It's, how do you know what is something else that could be interfering with it and what actually does require some type of medical intervention? Like how many, how many doctors do you go see for like a second opinion, a third opinion to kind of like verify what the appropriate direction is? Well, God, I'm, I'm just not in favor of that approach. I think one of the problems is that we're, we have this kind of quote unquote expert culture and we're always turning to experts to tell us. It's what an authority we bias. We've, it, we've spoken about bias. But, the, if, but we know who those experts are. You know, if we take a step back, what we're looking at is many of those experts are just following established identifiable protocols that were influenced by um, pharmaceutical industry. So if I could put someone through a brain scan and say, oh, look at your prefrontal cortex isn't developed the same way as this kid. Here we have these exercises. I have this behavioral plan. We're going to hold them back one year and we're going to make sure you're doing this behavioral parent training and uh, focus training in your home. We're going to decrease the amount of uh, television and iPad and phone and video game use and we're going to retest this person in one year well that's scientific approach mm -hmm. right that's the use of some science-based intervention that's not what happens a label is just generally provided without any evidence without much evaluation and a drug is provided so the question why you why it's so difficult to answer that is because you would need someone to evaluate the problem and what it takes to evaluate the problem is time and investigation so maybe there are problems with the parents. Maybe there is conflict in the home. Maybe there's poor parenting skills. Maybe there's poverty. Maybe there's not enough attention to the kids. Uh, there's two parents that are working and there's not enough attention. Maybe there's way too much screen time that would be developmentally appropriate. Maybe they're lacking skills in how to uh, raise and understand some, a, a child that is in that stage of development. Maybe it has to do with nutrition eating habits, sleep. There's all the factors um, that we're unaware of, but you're not going to know unless that time and investigation is, is placed in, into understanding what the problem is. And that is not our, that is not our healthcare system. No. So if you just want to go with to expert after expert after expert, talk to somebody for a period of time, maybe at best you're going to complete something like the Connors test and you think that's giving you valid information as to what is wrong with your child. That's what we're trying to get you to avoid, folks. That is the problem, not the solution. We need to get out of that mindset. It is not accurate. It is not working. We need to actually take control of our lives and if we're going to improve the healthcare system, you need to have people who are willing to fully investigate all those factors, all those variables. I don't know how else to do it, but I think we have to get people to, to wake up first and understand how unscientific this is and how uh, we're brainwashed. And I, I would add that I think we need to start training more psychologists to work with children. Uh, that is a struggle for uh, many organizations is finding clinicians that can handle and, and can work with children and adolescents. It's, it's a challenge because they're not all trained properly, nor have they ever been trained in, in that area. So unfortunately the system feeds off itself. So poor, you know, it's poor education, poor professors who are teaching the same ideas. Um, and we're not getting enough people to think outside the box creativity. We need new ideas, right? We have to think about mental health and our, our behavior and, and our struggles from more complex perspectives. And, and it can't be a one size fits all. We got to just break free of the restrictions of these, of these diagnoses without uh, validity, these stupid checklists. And, and we have to look at everything that's happening in, in American culture that could be influencing problems that exist. And as a teacher, I would give this to the parents listening Obviously, we've mentioned it a thousand times, parenting is the hardest job in the world. One of the things that I notice about some of the kids that are in my classes that are a little bit more well-rounded, that are outgoing, is they have parents that are completely persistent and consistent, meaning they will lay down a rule at a young age, they will follow that guideline, and it, and it is hard for them to do because you're always going to have resistance from a child. 
And you've got to overcome the feeling that you have when that child resists, when they start to get angry at you. You are the parent, mm. and it's your responsibility to be persistent and consistent. Um, and, that's such a good point. Th- this is another podcast idea. Sean Kelly, mark it down. Um, we do have, uh, we, we have lost some of the authority of adults in, in our society. And there are parents who let the children run their homes. Almost like there's a fear of, uh, of instituting limits and boundaries and authority in their own home. There's no doubt about that. That's mm-hmm. a shift. Not something that, you know, we necessarily experienced 30, 50 years ago, going back to 1960 with uh, Dennis the Menace. You know, those adults had... had Mr. Mitchell laid down the law at the end of the day. That was the lesson to be learned. Mm. Yeah, and there was a tolerance for Mr. Mitchell, right? He got annoyed by Dennis, (laughs) but he often did say there was a lesson to be learned there because there was, I think, a tolerance and acceptance of that stage in in development and you have a you have a lot to learn there's there's a lot of quote unquote disruptive oppositional kids who change the world listening to a podcast may be therapeutic but it is not therapy always seek the advice of your mental health professional if you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency Call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.